Hey, we're back. It's Sunday. So we need to have our uh, Surgeon General required warning prior to every Sunday show. Exactly. It's <laughs> not your normal show. This is not your normal podcast. This is our Sunday debrief podcast. This is where we sort of talk about whatever pops into our minds, but primarily, obviously, the intent of today's podcast is like Julie and I writing in our shared journal of past week's sort of highlights and the things we're sort of looking forward to. Um, anticipating maybe would be a better choice of words versus looking forward to in the following week. And along the way, hopefully we have some interesting and sometimes I think uh, purposeful contact with all of you guys and communication with all of you guys to help you set your mindset straight and ready to take on the new week. And I'll start out, Julie, by saying I was responding to a text from somebody Mm -hmm. who's actually part of our EXP group. And it's a common sort of theme that we get the second half of the year, but I think especially because of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. a lot of people, you know, they're happy that they've got some deals going on. They've got some momentum there, or at least they're seeing a light at the end of the tunnel, but they're also sensing the end of the year, which is the thing to be sensing because that is really going to come up on you fast around the corner, really. And so they're trying to really get clear about what they should be doing. And this, again, I get iterations of this question all the time. I'm sure you do too. Mm Mm-hmm. And the gist of it is, is this is exactly what I tell every single one of you guys are going to ask me that same question. Here's the answer. Do the 90-day massive action plan. Julie created the 90-day massive action plan. It updates it probably two or three times a year. Julie, can you like drill down with them and tell them what it is? And by the way, guys, it's free. So hold on for yeah. a second and how to get it. But well, Julie, tell them. Sure. And this is personalized. This isn't like some you know random free business plan you can download online. This is very personalized and does require a little bit of work from you because it is all about you. And so the first thing it does is it has you do a little look back. So, you know, we're more than halfway through the year. Where's your business been coming from so that you know what your sources are? Are you currently on track ahead or behind of where you should be? For some of you, you didn't really have that thought. You don't really know where you should be. You just know, you know, this is common to people who don't actually have business plans. I just want more. I need to do more. I need to do better. I need to save more. Well, those are just, you know, those are dreams. Those are not goals. They're not quantified. So it forces you to revisit so that you know, are you on track ahead or behind? Those of you who are used to that drill, which is most of our coaching clients, will know, are you on track ahead or behind? If you're ahead by how much, if you're on track, what caused that? And if you're behind by how much? And then you have a decision to make. What are you going to do for the next six months, which is really a 90-day segment? You really want to, especially this year, maybe even 30 days for some of you, but certainly a 90-day massive action plan. And look at the title, Massive Action. That gets you back on track. It either keeps you ahead or it keeps you basically on track to where you should be, but it, it makes you figure out those numbers. So the first number is what's the, the income requirement for you? And it takes, you know, maybe your spouse is working, so it figures in that math and maybe not. Maybe you've got some rental income, maybe not. But what do you have to earn over the next 90 days? Things like paying your mortgage or rent, your car payment, your credit cards, keeping the lights on, gas in your car, groceries on the table, all the normal stuff that just gives you an existence. This is just like getting by money, okay? Then we revisit your goals, goals in five areas of life. What do you intend to do? Looking back 90 days from now, what will you be most proud of? Is that a credit card you paid off? Is that finally having money in the bank? Maybe it's both. For some of you guys, you know, you're making a big business move right now and reinvesting in yourselves. But what's gonna make you really proud at the end of 90 days? Write it down, does it have a price tag? Figure it into what you've gotta earn. And then you you add those things together. What have I gotta earn? What do I have to earn, including my goals, 
divided my, by my net average commission check. If you don't know what that is, your broker probably tracks it, your accountant tracks it, you know, recreate it from your deposits. If you're newer to the business and you don't really have an average, you can basically use the average for your town. So if the average sale price in your town is- From the MLS. From the MLS, then divide it out by your average commission, the net to you, and you'll get a feel for it until you have more transactions. So then that will tell you how many deals you have to do per month over the next 90 days. Next question is, where are they gonna come from? Maybe you're sitting on 15 active listings. Maybe some of them are gonna sell right away and maybe others you think right away, I've got to do a price adjustment or I can't count on this stuff selling. Maybe you're sitting on a pool of buyers. Most of you are. A lot of you guys, the only reason they're not in contract is because you haven't found them anything to buy because you're relying on the MLS. So you see how we get into massive action. You've got to take different action steps to have different results. Um, and Julie just touched on something else too. You cannot think of the you know rest of this year as, as six months because it's really not. Realistically, and we talk about this with our coaching clients, we talk about this in our normal daily podcast, uh, you don't have six months left this year. You realistically have about 90 days uh, to get work done. Cause work you, days, yeah. you take yeah, work days. You take out the holidays. You take out the weekends. You take out just other things where you maybe want to work, but you're not going to find anyone to work with because they're going to be eating turkey and whatnot. So when you take out all the non-work days versus the work days, you're looking at roughly 90 days left this year. Why are we telling you all this? Because more than ever, especially because of COVID, especially because of the fact that it looks like that asshole virus is coming back again, That's right. which everyone predicted, um, especially for all these other you know normal reasons that happen this time of year, kids going back to school and all that, you've got to be focused. You've got to be drilled down. Um, and one of the things you're going to discover when you do the 90-day massive action plan, I'm going to tell you guys how to get it for free, is there's also going to be a minimum number of contacts you have to make every single day. And the number of contacts... And a contact is a conversation with a decision-making adult. And I know a lot of you guys have made the mistakes as you've gotten more seasoned and experienced in your careers to rationalize that you're making contacts when A, you have other people making the contacts for you. Maybe you've delegated it or you think you have. B, you have contacts being made digitally or maybe you're just doing direct mail. None of those things count as a contact. And none of those things will ever count as a contact. The only thing that counts as a contact is an actual conversation with a decision-making adult. It can be over the about phone. About real estate, by the way. Right, exactly about real estate. It doesn't have to start with the about being of about being real about real estate. It could start being about anything really, and then you can pivot it and ask the simple questions we give you in the coaching program to um, you know find out if they have anyone that's interested in buying or selling real estate. And the the line is, by the way, whom do you know who's interested in buying or selling real estate that I should be helping in this market? And when you say that, no matter what the conversation started out as, it's going to pivot back towards real estate and they're going to then, you know, feel almost obligated to help you. So because you said, who do you know that I should be helping? By saying those magic words, you're going to create a different kind of, um, I think, energy with the people you're asking. And they're going to be thinking, who is it that might need help? Opposed to your ego telling you by asking that question, you're somehow going to seem too pushy or desperate. It's not perceived that way by them, and it won't feel that way by you when you ask the question because you're focusing on the keyword, which is helping, right? Right. So all these things are really important. And what is absolutely bottom line, I hope all of you understand, this is an abnormal market. This is an abnormal market that we're entering into. Nothing that we have in certainly our lifetimes, and Julie and I have been in the real estate business for over 25 years. We've never experienced anything like this. You guys hear that jet? It's because we're outside. Hey, yep. Julie, which, which airline is that? Is that the horrible Spirit airline? No, Spirit's still at least 
two days behind. Yeah, if you guys ever... I actually think that's an Amazon jet. Yay! Uh, is it? Finally. <laughs> Amazon Prime. Yes, Julie and I are Amazon Prime members. But it, unlike the mainland, Amazon Prime means 24 hours. Amazon Prime here means 24 days. Yeah, if you're lucky. <laughs> that's right. And then your package will be half opened. Yeah, then you're... Exactly. Yeah. Uh, what were you talking about? <laughs> uh, just, you know, getting to work. and. Oh, and by the way, if you guys ever come visit us in Puerto Rico, do not fly Spirit Airlines. Trust me. Spirit you Airlines. up on the wrong island. It's like you're riding on a ghost of what should have been an actual jet. It's yeah, one of the, it's, it's no almost bueno. like a third world experience. Like something you'd seen from some action movie from the 80s. That, no TVs. You don't even get, there's not even a plug for your iPhone. Well, those luxuries aside, the chair, the seats are tiny. They don't feed you. They don't decline. Or recline. recline. Yeah, or no, it declines. It just doesn't recline. <laughs> no, it's so bad. <laughs> yeah, it's so bad. Yeah, that'll teach you to get up earlier in the morning. That's the only That's reason right. we were on that Fly flight. Delta. Fly Delta. There's Delta's the answer. The so, yes, these are all the things you need to be taking into consideration when you are looking at the rest of the year. you were talking about this is an abnormal market. And, yeah. And it's hard for some of them to get that. You know, it's been interesting uh, in the in the markets that are still starved for inventory. COVID has made that worse. And one of the common questions that I have is agents are, you know, they're getting people in contract. They're super busy. They're slammed. They're starved for their own time management. And now they're questioned. And they, they thought they were busy before, right? So I think some of this is because of low interest rates. Let's go back and visit something you just said. Because yeah. so why is COVID... Uh, okay, I t- promised to tell them how to get the guide. So all you have to do, guys, and by the way, when you do this, you're also going to be given free access to our you know, free coaching program that we come out uh, with uh, about 90 days ago. It's a version of our premier coaching program. It's not the full suite of products and, that normal coaching members get, but it will get you started. So if you guys want to join the free coaching program, just text the word SURVIVAL, and the word is SURVIVAL to 31996. Text the word survival to 31996. We're literally having thousands of agents from around the country join that free coaching program. And people are ranting and raving about it. It does give you the 90-day massive action plan. It does give you the real estate treasure map. And it does get you started and giving you the direction a lot of you guys are looking for. So, Julie, yes. I've been thinking about this, actually, mm-hmm. sort of randomly. Why would COVID, and you're going to say the obvious answers, but I want you to, like, we'll say the obvious answers first. And then, then let's really think about it. Why would COVID exacerbate the lack of inventory because people are you know maybe not wanting people coming through their house people who i'll tell you why the people who the don't mo- have it's not to the sell. motivation thing okay i don't think what? it is i know that's I think what, that's part of it i don't think it is honestly okay i think the reason is is because a lot of the people that if they put their houses for sale because they're underemployed or unemployed yeah or unemployment they wouldn't be able to get another mortgage yeah that's for sure that's and what well, i think I it mean, is that's covid related yeah you would argue and i think a lot of the a lot of the people that are essentially yeah, it's covid related but to say it's nervousness because, in the market nervousness about the economy and their own personal economy a lot of them are in mortgage forbearance a yeah. lot of them are basically essentially waiting for to figure out what's going to happen next but I don't think the reason that there's not houses for sale is because the people aren't motivated and so they're just not even going to try. That c- kind of makes sense. I'm sure that's a percent of it. But I don't, the answer yeah. has to be related to the unemployment, their financial sure. concerns. If someone has to sell a house, has to sell a house, they're not going to be worried too well, much yes, about people true. walking through the yeah, house. that's true. But, you know, and I, I think that's actually been good for the market overall is that by and large, the houses that are for sale right now are with people who have to sell. They're motivated to right. sell. They will negotiate. You know, um, I mean, I see it with our leases, right? We've had a few of our properties go vacant, and I talk to our property managers. They're like, well, you know, 
they both <laughs> Vegas is probably the most problematic. They both work in in hotels, but this one's got good credit. This one doesn't. And and me and the property manager are like, you know what? Now's not really the time to be super picky. No, let's just get it done. So yeah, I, sure. you know, because I'm motivated to not have a vacant property, right? Um, but I think that the buyers and sellers, you do see more negotiating going on, but you see deals getting done and sticking for the most part. Well, so, so Jamie Dimon, who is... I was uh, just looking that up, as a matter of fact. Jamie Dimon thing? Yep, J.P. Morgan uh, Chase. That's funny. just saying. You read get, my mind. Yep, let me get... Well, did that. I even send that article you to did. you? Oh, you okay. Well, I'll get it started. Here it is. Okay, go ahead. Okay, JP, Jamie Dimon's warning for the U.S. economy. Nobody knows what comes next. Okay, so remember, he is... J.P. Morgan Chase guy. The range... He was—he actually was going to be the uh, Treasury Secretary, supposedly. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they're bantering that about to be at the Treasury, not under Trump, but under um, Obama. He was, yeah. he because he was a big rock star after the housing collapse. Well, yeah, that's why we all know his name. Um, okay, so the range of outcomes for the economy in the second half is incredibly wide. J.P. Morgan Chase sees no fewer than five different paths that it could take. So again, to your point of uncertainty, right? The bank has gotten more pessimistic seeing unemployment in its default base scenario hitting nearly 11% by the end of this year, 4.3% worse than when it made the same forecast in April. In a worst case scenario where the virus surges further in the fall, forcing another round of widespread shutdowns, unemployment could peak at roughly 23%, the bank said. This is a quote from Diamond. The world, uh, the word unprecedented is rarely used property properly. This time it's being used properly. It's unprecedented what's going on around the world, and obviously COVID itself is a main attribute. So he says, attempting to, to forecast the path of the American economy right now is like peering into a dark well. Nobody knows how deep the hole goes. Back to you. Well, the article goes a lot deeper than that. Yeah. It lays out the different scenarios. It's The scenarios are laid out at the end of that article, which I thought was pretty spot on with what you and I have been saying for like the last four months, if you can find it. But here's really the big takeaway is nobody really knows what's going to happen next. And Julie's going to get to the, hopefully find this section. And and here's something else I've been reading. And let me tell you guys, this is thick reading. Like, I haven't even finished it yet. So Ray Dalio has been doing – and Ray Dalio, if you guys don't know, is I think probably one of the most – I don't know. He's right up there with Warren Buffett as far as having his shit together and kind of being a good, um, you know – truth teller of the economy and you know bellwether and knowing what's going to happen next and you know he's a billionaire he's just really you know i think very well reasoned and thought through guy and his widget to success has essentially been about historical modeling so he spends a lot of time trying to he's a big believer obviously in history repeating itself or a very close version of what's already happened so he's been writing these articles uh and you can get them for free actually it's not even an article it's more like a freaking book honestly it's like a novel each one is quite long yeah and thick as i said but i think you know on linkedin you got to take in bite-sized pieces but that's okay right that kind of writer so go to uh linkedin actually just go to google and put in linkedin and then put a ray dalio ray dalio d-a-l-i-o and then put in the keywords new world order and you'll find his articles um I think it's the first, I think we're on section three. So he's been coming out with these like one every month or something. And I kind of know where he's building up to. I think I know where he's building up to, but here's one of the things this is as far as into the article as I've gotten. It's similar to what Jamie Dimon was just saying. Nobody knows really what's going on, but Ray is saying, this is what will happen. So what Ray is suggesting 
Uh, I can go ahead and talk about it. And this is, again, I haven't read the whole article yet, but what Ray is suggesting in essence is we're copying a similar pattern that we did back in the thirties, primarily in the thirties, where you have struggling uh, superpowers that are essentially, you know, fighting over essentially what amounts to, you know, oil and water and, you know, dominance over the seas and the airways and all the rest of it. And he's, I think, again, not finished the article yet, referring to China. So what he seems to be suggesting, haven't gotten there yet, is that there's going to be some kind of military conflict with China. And he's also seemingly suggesting that there's going to be a a reshuffling of the U.S. dollar as the global world reserve currency. Now, I haven't, there's, obviously, there's a lot of people that suggest the same thing. And just to kind of encapsulate it in my incredibly amateurish way, what that means, in essence, is that after World War II, all the essentially major countries of the world were in tatters. Their countries were literally destroyed. Their industry was destroyed. Their global you know, ability to con- compete on the global stage was destroyed. So they had to rebuild. The uh, Essentially, the most powerful bankers in the world got together at an, in an island called Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia, if I remember correctly. And this place is still there. I've seen pictures of it, haven't been there. And they got together and they essentially uh, put together, well, the U.S., they put together the U.S., not the U.S. Treasury, but they put together the, was it the U.S. Treasury? Mm, I, have to, I think that's right, but I have to look yes, that up. I think that's right, yeah. But the other thing that happened is there was another accord or another meeting that essentially established with all the European countries primarily that the U.S. dollar would become the global reserve currency. Again, I know I'm not getting all this right, but just follow me on the broad strokes. And there's a great book, too, uh, by Jim Rickards called The New Case for Gold. You guys should read that book. It's something I've read uh, quite a few years ago, and I pay attention to Jim as far as uh, what he's predicting, and, and he's predicting essentially the same thing as Ray's predicting, same thing as Peter Schiff is predicting, same thing as a lot of these other guys are predicting. We're not looking for we're not looking for confirmation bias as far as people that are all saying and thinking the same thing. But what we're noticing is more of more people are starting to say the same thing, and more people that really, if you try to think about it, why would Ray Dalio want to be pressing that particular topic? I know why Peter Schiff does. Because he essentially is, you know, he's a gold guy. He wants people to buy gold. And that is what he is. He's a professional, very elegant and eloquent uh, gold sales guy, really. And if you guys didn't hear him on uh, Peter, I'm sorry, on Joe Rogan's podcast last week, you should listen to that. He's done three other podcasts with um, Joe Joe before. And I think this one he did most recently was the worst one. But the others that he's done were very, very effective. And you guys should listen to it. So long story short. Global reserve currency gives the U.S. an unfair advantage on the uh, across the planet. That means that, in essence, every like sometimes the U.S. dollar is called the petrol dollar. So at the end of the day, all the uh, uh, trading that was done on oil basically is then settled up through the Treasury Department. Through um, can you confirm that? I hate to, hate to screw that up. I don't want to say it a third time if I'm wrong about that. that. I just say Jek- just put in Jekyll, Jekyll Island. Island. And treasury? Do they? I don't. I seem to think Treasury Department's wrong, but anyway, you'll figure it out quick. I'll tell you in a second. Yeah. Why well, I'm feeling dumb? I can't believe I don't remember that. <laughs> we'll figure it out. I might be right. We'll see. Well, in any any event, what they're saying now is that originally, when that um, agreement happened, making the U.S. dollar the global reserve currency, the U.S. dollar was backed by gold. So that means that on Federal your reserve system, uh, I had it off wrong. the coast of Georgia in 1910. And it's Treasury, but it's Federal Reserve, not Federal U.S. Reserve. Treasury. Okay, I got it. You're so in I, the right wheelhouse, but yeah. <laughs> that's something to do with money. 
Federal Reserve. Economists, okay, people. Yeah, exactly. Don't email us. (laughs) Great. Well, if you we looked it up. If we screw something up, tell us. But so the Federal Reserve. Here's a fun thing about that. The Federal Reserve sounds real official, like it's an official branch of government, right? Well, it's not. The Federal Reserve is actually privately owned, and it's owned by essentially the largest banks, primarily in the United States. Julie, can you read about how it was formed? Go back to it, because it is really freaking crazy interesting, I think. Okay, a secret gathering at a secluded island. This is true, guys. Off the coast of Georgia in 1910 laid the foundations for the Federal Reserve System. Six men. So, so let me let me yeah. inter- So I had that. So the Federal Reserve got established obviously far before World War II. 1910. Yeah. Okay, but then what happened after World War II? That's when they decided to basically make the U.S. the uh, global reserve currency. Right. So, in case I wasn't clear before. Well, the meeting and its purpose were closely guarded secrets, and participants did not admit that the meeting occurred until the 1930s. But the plan, written on Jekyll Island, laid a foundation for what would eventually become the Federal Reserve System. At the time, uh, all of the men who met on Jekyll Island believed the banking system suffered from serious problems. Uh, collectively, they encapsulated their concerns in the plan they wrote in the reports for the National Monetary Commission. Uh, let's see. They were concerned about financial panic, disrupted economic activity. Nationwide panics occurred on average every 15 years. That's interesting. Those panics forced financial institutions to suspend operations, triggering long and deep recessions. So, uh, it goes on to talk about how Europe handled that. Um, Jekyll Island participants believed that an array of antiquated arrangements impeded America's financial and economic progress. Um, let's see. Hang on a second. That's it. You got That's the gist basically of it. Yeah. It. I read that if some of the backstory in Jim's book, The New Case for Gold, which is really actually am- the anecdotes are hilarious. It's, a, it's interesting to research, though, because there's a lot of secrecy about oh, this. Oh, it's business. like, honestly, Julie, it reads like some sort of crazy oh, James Bond. This should be something to watch on Netflix. Yeah, right? I mean, so much We've been coming up dry on that. that. <laughs> I know. I'm doing bad on my Netflixing. But yeah. uh, one of the stories that Jim talks about, and I think it was, actually, I think it was the J.P. Morgan guy, J.P. Morgan, right? The actual mm-hmm. J.P. Morgan. So he was in New York, and he had to get to this uh, meeting. And supposedly, they had a whole bunch of uh, crafty ways of making it so people didn't realize that he had left his mansion in New York, and then he was out of town. And because they went to these great lengths to hide the fact that this meeting was taking place, and as, as you just said, mm-hmm. no one even admitted it took place until twenty yeah, years later. Yeah, it was very secretive. Yeah, and that's basically what essentially the banks then got together and formed the you know. Uh, that system and then after World War II because our country is the only one left standing then they made the US dollar the global reserve currency but just follow me here guys the US dollar was then backed by gold up until President Nixon it was starting to basically um, that's what happened so Nixon essentially took the US off the gold standard and then basically the concept was that the US dollar like most other currencies in the world all other currencies in the world we're just backed by faith and confidence. So you are taking my dollar to sell me your apple because you believe that that dollar that I'm giving you will then basically allow you to go and buy eggs. Okay, so that's it. So that paper dollar it was um, the accepted. Um, we all had the confidence that the currency was something that was going to allow us to buy what we wanted to with what we we're, you know, what we were selling, and the currency acted as the medium of exchange. Well, fast forward, the after Nixon, the U.S. dollar is no longer backed by gold. Money, and I, I do remember, barely remember seeing this when I was a kid. So I was a kid in the 70s, right? And that was, and there were still the old, some of the old currency was still floating around. Or maybe I saw this at a, you know, maybe I'm, you know, conflating memories, but 
I remember seeing a uh, currency that said that you could exchange that currency for the equivalent in gold I at a bank. I remember that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we just might be remembering pictures, you know. Could be. But yeah, so it used to be that you could take your $20 or your $20 bill and you could take it to a bank and then that would be exchangeable for $20 of gold. And then after Nixon, it didn't work that way anymore. You take, there is no, it wasn't gold backed anymore. And so really what's happening is that um, U.S. right now is printed. People are so screwed up about the amount of money, too. It's really fascinating for me to listen to how, like, people say there was $2 trillion, uh printed. There was actually an unlimited trillion printed. Nobody knows for sure how much money was actually printed as a result. And by printed, it means digital, right? They're not actually creating, you know, dollars because everyone's digital nowadays. It's more like a keystroke. So they just, you know, push a couple buttons and inflate. And what, the, what they've been doing is they've been buying assets. They've been buying, um, you know, things from Wall Street. They've been buying bonds. By they, I mean the Treasury Department. So they have been artificially stimulating you can look you we can mix these words and we could say whatever we want to but what happened was is that in order to keep the stock market up so some of you guys were wondering how the hell is that the house prices and the stock market's doing so great and how is it that there's not been a big river of you know defaults starting how is it all this not been mm-hmm. actually what's going on doesn't make sense and we have unemployment this high and we have you know covid looking like it's going to shut certain uh, parts of the country down again how is it that we have you know, this booming market in so many weird ways, it doesn't make sense. I mean, after all, the stock market's supposed to look like the stock market. People, when you buy a stock, right, you're buying it based on the idea in the future the company is going to be increasing its value. It's going to have more customers, sell more products. So you're buying hopium, basically, when you're investing in a, con- a, a company. Now, if you're buying Coca-Cola, if you're buying some company that's been around forever, well, it's probably a pretty damn good bet that people are going to stop drinking Coke no matter what the economy is doing. But, a lot, but in essence, when you're buying uh, you know, index funds or stocks or mutual funds, you're buying on the belief that the company you're investing in is going to be worth more tomorrow than it is today. Okay, that's what it is. So does it make sense for you right now to be believing that that's true, that the companies that are out there right now are going to be making more money in the next you know, three to five years? I don't know. And neither is Jamie Dimon. But here's what's happening is the Fed, and this is what's really causing an interesting something that's never happened before. Well, at least not at this scale. The Fed is going in there and buying what needs to be bought and keeping prices up in order to keep the uh, market from correcting, in order to keep there from being a stock market crash or a, a real estate you know, crash. And and so when you see the ha- what's happening is the um, people that are buying and selling stock and whatnot, they are literally banking on the Fed continuing this behavior. They're assuming that the Fed is going to continue to purchase uh, more securities, more sort of, you know, things that are going to keep their assets from depreciating. Okay. So the same thing is happening in real estate, but in different ways. So by allowing people to do mortgage forbearances, which frankly, again, I know this is not, this is a conflict with Julie and I's core belief of libertarianism primarily. But if you think about it, I think frankly, keeping people in their houses, because a lot of these people are going to, would fall so hard because they're not going to fall back into unemployment. They're not, some of them going to be able to get rental. I mean, a place to, it's horrible what's happening right now. And it's being underreported. Just look at the numbers. The numbers will tell you the truth. But what you're seeing again is you're seeing the government, again, interference or interference is a good word or a bad word. You guys can, you know, run that through your own, um, you know, word check, but interference in keeping the housing market from correcting. They're keeping the stock market from correcting. And how about this one? I bet you guys didn't know this. Do you guys realize how many subprime auto loans there are? Virtually every car loan that's made nowadays 
is in essence what amounts to a subprime auto loan. And do you know who buys the subprime auto loans? Do you guys have any idea? So when you go, when someone with you know, j- you know jinky credit goes and buys a new car, uh, does that who who's where's that money come from? Where's that money go? Right. So the Fed, just like with mortgage mortgages, is backstopping car loans. So the Fed is in essence making it so that when the you know servicers, like when you make your payment to GMAC for your truck payment or whatever. They're just servicing the loan. The loan is actually held usually by the Fed. So the Fed is literally stepping into every single major market that you can imagine and being a purchaser for whatever those quote-unquote assets are, no matter how dubious they are, in order to keep the, the economy flowing. Because if, for example, a car dealership you know, is getting, let's say it's, a, again, a GM car dealership, and let's say they know 90% of all the people walking in the front door are going to use GM financing. But if they didn't have a place to sell those loans to, uh, literally, I, I'm using the word literally too often, but it's okay. it's literally the best word to use. Zoe's picked it up, by the way. Oh, literally. So, yes. I'm literally hungry, mama. <laughs> I got that for you. Yeah. Oh, okay, funny. got it. All right. Here, I owe you a dollar every time I say literally from okay. now on. I'm annoying myself. That's all right. All right. Um, so... What's we're I'm fighting it now? <laughs> well, so 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 yeah. what we're what we're yeah. get, what we're seeing is the Fed is going in there and basically buying the loans from the servicer, just like they do on mortgages, so that the servicer GMAC can then go out and start doing more loans through the dealers, and without there being a purchaser for all of this debt that is being created, there would be no commerce, and and if you guys have ever been to a true third world country, which Julie and I have, where there is no debt market, where there is no ability to borrow money. Let me tell you, it's a scary freaking place. Yes. When you see, if you think, <laughs> if you think yeah. people in the worst parts of the U.S. live poorly, go to Not a third, even close. go to the Dominican Republic, go yeah. to a third world country and look to see what the difference is between the true haves and the have nots. You would not believe what you would see. How un uh, running water would be one. They the ability li- to get groceries. Julie and I, when we we stayed, this was years ago. We went to the Dominican Republic, probably fifteen years ago. Somewhere in there, yeah. Yeah, and um, we went to you know a, a decent resort, but we got bored quick. We're not resorter or cruise ship types, and we wanted to go out and explore. And we found somebody that was willing to take us on a tour of supposedly these really cool caves, which, by the way, they were not really cool. And um, they were caves. so we they walked cool. there with him from the resort. He was a good, you know, cave salesman. So we believed him. And we walked there from the resort. And on the way, we were walking through what could only be described as a jungle. And within this jungle, that could only be described as just uh, huts, shacks, Um Lean tos or less, and babies running around naked, and uh, just the worst. I don't even want to get into the descriptions of the other things that we saw, and it was totally and completely normal for him. This is probably where he lived. Yeah, and this was a whole little town. There was no streets. There was a little you know crappy path. There were no signs. There were no lights. And this was. (laughs) We thought we were going to die. And yeah, I remember you and I looking at our flip-flops going, why did we wear these? Exactly. I was thinking the <laughs> exact same thing. Okay. Flip-flops are not the shoe wear to wear. No. Yeah, we should have been wearing hazmat suits is what we should have been wearing. Right. But you walk through this and you're going, oh my gosh, how can this actually be a place that's this close to the United States? Or I didn't realize that people could 
you know, and then the more we traveled, the more we realized that there's more places like that on planet Earth that you can possibly imagine. Mm. And then, well, why is it that people live like this? It's because ultimately you were living, you were living amongst what truly happens when there is no viable way for normal people to lift themselves up out of essentially abject poverty, real poverty, not what we call poverty. Now, our poverty line is what essentially you could have in the Dominican Republic and feel very wealthy. If you're making like 20 grand in the Dominican Republic, you're doing great. You're not living at the Ritz, but you're doing great. So uh, it's because they can't borrow money. They can't borrow money to go to school. They can't borrow money to just establish themselves. Most things are done in cash or trade. Yeah, or trade. People don't even have checking accounts. No, and yeah, they exactly. There are no banks uh, available to, to uh, just you know anyone other than the really wealthy people. Um, so if you don't know how blessed we are to have the viable credit markets like we do, and you hear a lot of people you know bitching and complaining about the American you know person uh, families not having any savings, and all these things are are true. The average American family has four hundred dollars in savings, and don't feel proud of yourself if you don't, if you have eight hundred. That's still not enough. You want to try to in our Harris Rules book, we talk about the idea. You want to try to have thirty days, then ninety days, then six months. And now that's not advice we'd give to everyone, but for a vast majority of you, because you're self-employed and there's obviously so much uncertainty, stopping and starting of the real estate market that's probably going to happen. Uh, you need to have some cash reserves, and don't count on the Fed to keep on bailing you out every time there's some new you know, pandemic. Um, but if you believe that, uh, debt is the problem in the United States, if you believe it's the problem, then if you take the ability for people to borrow away, if you take the ability for businesses to borrow away, then you're going to have what will be an absolute horror show of an economy. So I don't know to Jamie Dimon's point, Mm -hmm. you know, and so Peter Schiff is like, we have to stop the lending. We have to make it so people can't borrow money, or at least we need to raise the interest rates to make it less attractive. Okay. If you do that, ultimately the the pain and suffering, the real pain and suffering that will happen will be unprecedented. Yeah. And so where does that leave you? So full circle with these articles and these books and whatnot, you guys should start consuming this too, because as more and more people that are mainstream, you know, Peter Schiff is on the edge, let's say he's in the, you know, on the fringe, but what he's saying now is being adapted by people that are in the mainstream. So you're going to hear more and more people talking about these very conversations that you and I, Julie and I have been having with you guys for years on this podcast. Um, You're going to start seeing those types of thoughts normalize. And here's the reason why, because what happens next, and this gets to Ray Dalio's, thesis is going to be the U.S. dollar no longer being, and this is Ray's thesis, right? The U.S. dollar is no longer going to be the global reserve currency. It's going to be replaced by something else or somethings of else like, um, what's his name? Jim, Jim's theory, at least one of his theories, was there's the new global reserve currency is going to be from the International Monetary Fund. And it's going to be a basket of currencies. So you'll have like maybe six different countries whose uh, all their currencies make up the new global reserve currency, and the U.S. dollar will lose its global uh, reserve currency status. Uh, there, If that happens, one of the greatest advantages our country has had was the ability to basically have the de facto global currency. And if we no longer have that, I don't completely understand what happens, but it does seem like we lose a lot of our leverage across the globe. Uh, right now, for example, people say, well, you know, there's this big hub above with China, and everyone's kind of worried about the the trade imbalance with China and China, you know, why, and the other thing I heard floating around was, you know, if the pandemic, if the coronavirus came from China, we should just cancel all of China's, you know, the money we owe them and all, all these bullshit conversations. 
you know, why does China keep on buying our debt if they're knowing that we're probably never going to be repay? Here's why. Because we owe China so much money in the form of trillions of dollars. And it all comes from like trade deficits. It all comes from them buying our treasury bonds. It all comes from essentially them agreeing to buy um, not only securities, but just, you know, us buying just tons and tons of stuff from them. So if all that comes to an end, for example, if, you know, Trump had just said, our way of paying you back for the pandemic is we owe you nothing for the trillions of dollars of treasury bonds that you guys have been buying from us over the years. Well, that's going to trash the treasury market because every other holder of the treasury debt, including U.S. citizens, are going to go, holy crap, if the U.S. is going to start canceling debt, that means these debt instruments that I own, you know, these treasury instruments, I'm not going to have any faith and confidence in, so I'm going to dump them. And, and the other reason, well, people, people ask, well, why is it that the Chinese are continuing to buy U.S. treasuries? The same reason the Fed is continuing to pump up the economy, because if the, if the Chinese themselves stop buying U.S. treasuries, considering they own trillions of dollars of U.S. treasuries, which they're hypothetically going to make money from, but if they stop buying them and they stop uh, essentially enforcing or reinforcing or inflating the treasury market, their investment in treasuries is going to go to hell. So they have an, a vested interest in continuing the, you know, essentially the, the money Ponzi scheme for as long as it can, even if it seems counterintuitive considering all the trade problems that supposedly we're having with the Chinese right now. So Jamie Dimon, right? Yep. Who the hell knows what's going to happen next? And he has, by all means, been around the block economically. And if some, uh, the way I look at it is if somebody like J.P. Dimon says, you know, he says, we simply don't know. And by the way, we're wasting time by guessing. You said we're going to have a much murkier economic environment going forward than you had even in May or June, and you have to be prepared for that. Right. So I think that's the big takeaway from that arg- article. And, you know, it does seem so odd to have such a massive level of uncertainty at the same time that, you know... That was an thing, old article, actually, you just Things read. are uh, moving, you know, there's yeah. still multiple offers and things like that. And so it seems counterintuitive to say, well, I should be afraid or I should take measures and, and make hay while the sun shines and all of that. Well, it's because of this huge uncertainty of third and fourth quarter and certainly of next year. Is that from a Workplace, that article? Yeah. Okay. You just sent it to me. Okay. Well, maybe it is the right article then. Yeah. Um, so here's the uh, big takeaway for all this. You guys are asking me, a lot of you are emailing Julie and I, you're asking if this is a great time to buy real estate. You're asking whether there's going to be depreciation or whether there's going to be some sort of inflation that's going to cause prices to rise. You're asking us all these questions, and the real answer is, is we don't know. So the only thing you can really do now to protect yourself is, yes, if something comes in, comes up as an opportunity to purchase, and the purchase price is realistically what the house would have sold for maybe three years ago, you probably don't have a lot of downside. But I would strongly suggest all of you right now to keep your powder dry because a year from now, what we're waiting to see happen, and everyone's going to be waiting for the same thing to happen, mm-hmm. is are is there going to be a uh, deleveraging um, once the um, you know all these mortgage forbearances run their course, once all these sort of um, pandemic um, you well, know bandages it, once those they, once article, they once they get ripped off, what's yeah. what's going to happen in the economy? He was talking about it. it's. We all think about forbearances because we're in the mortgage and real estate world right his point was more like what you're talking about with the car loans too he said you know forbearances weren't just for houses there were a lot of deals made with credit cards and car companies and student loans and you know the real and then he tied that to the stimulus checks and all the different benefits that were out there and his big point was nobody knows what's going to happen when all of that dries up because it's not probably going to go on forever 
but what's the timing of that? Will that all happen at the same time? Probably not. So, you know, again, more uncertainty, but probably with unemployment already where it is, it's not going to be good. So people did not know what was going, they knew back in, uh, what was it? March, <laughs> right? Yeah. All, millions of years ago in March, exactly. um, you and I were all over this uh, pandemic thing as we started to see it affect European, uh, frankly, our European coaching clients. We started seeing people ask us questions and broken English from Italy and wondering what the hell was going to happen in our opinion. And we had to sort of jump in the deep end and sort of research all this stuff for the mm-hmm. first time. Well, one of the thing we did, uh, I think even underestimate and you and I were really throwing spitballs was how much government intervention there would be. Yeah. You and I knew there was going to be a lot, but did we think that they were going to pump this much money, trillions and trillions of dollars? It's supposedly over ten trillion, as much as fourteen trillion dollars, yeah. in different forms that they've pumped into the economy. Guys, the total GDP for the United States, the total value of all the goods and services that are you know flow through the United States every year, is something like twenty-one trillion dollars. So the Fed essentially has injected as much money into the economy. By the time it's done, probably the end of the year, because they're going to be presenting more stimulus. Let's talk about the vacation stimulus in a second. <laughs> yeah. They're going to be injecting more stimulus. They're probably going to inject over $20 trillion into the economy. Who knows, right? It's hard to say. And they're trying to stave off an absolute deflationary cycle. That's the, that's the only logical. Like, so if they stop doing it, here's just think about this. If the Fed said no more forbearances, if the Fed said no more enhanced unemployment, if the Fed said no more PPP loans or no more EIDL loans. All of you guys sink or swim, which is, again, what a lot of people um, of a you know, certain economic leaning are hoping to have happen. What's going to happen? All of those things would basically depreciate. All of them would, especially if all of a sudden you couldn't get loans to buy those things. So if you guys are, you know, I'm going to wait for prices to drop and then I'm going to run into the bank. I'm going to buy a house. You know, no, you won't because the mortgage company or the bank won't give you a loan. Well, it's already hard to get jumbo loans. Right. You know, that's what's going to happen. It's going to get harder to get loans when things go on sale. It's counterintuitive. When things go on sale, it's harder. The reason they're going on sales because lack of confidence in, people's, in the value of the asset and less lack of confidence in people's ability to pay for the asset, which means the banks are going to be less likely to want to lend money on those particular types of assets. So if that happens, which I don't think it will, and this is what I think really is the first time in the history of history will ever happen. As long as it can, in my opinion, mm-hmm. there is absolutely no political backbone to stop the, yeah. um, you know, the inflation of the economy. I don't think you're going to see. Well, nobody's going to be res- want to be responsible for that. It's you know who's going to pull that trigger? Well, and you're going to see the steady beating of the drum from all these you know Ray Dalio types and all these other people. You know, they're going to start essentially start. They're all going to say the same thing. There's going to be some sort of bill to pay. And a bill might come in the form of depreciation of the U.S. currency, which is already happening with the printing of more dollars. The bill might come in the form of, you know, some kind of who knows what, right? Or the bill might simply come in the form that it has forever, which pushing the bill to the next generation. In other words, Mm -hmm. you're going to see the next generation that's going to be responsible for this debt. I don't know. Who the hell knows? Nobody does. There does not seem to be a viable alternative in place to replace the U.S. dollars. Not like... Uh, a country right now says, okay, we're ready to roll it out. We've got enough gold to back our currency to make it so that it's going to be something that, um, you know, everyone's going to want to start exchanging in, in their domestic markets. Like, I don't know if I want to be trading a yuan, but if all of a sudden the Chinese currency yuan, when I, you know, had $100 in yuan or 100 yuan, whatever the hell it's called, if it's backed by 
uh, actual gold that if I can just take that $100 yuan bill and take it into the local yuan bank and I can get $100 for it versus the – I think people are going to want that because then there's something mm-hmm. else that's going to – gold, guys, in case you didn't know it, there's one price for it all over the world. One price means that essentially you could take your ounce of gold, you can land anywhere on planet Earth, and that one ounce of gold would be worth the same thing that it's worth now. And gold has been on a tear. Gold right now is over $1,800 an ounce. When Julie and I started buying gold when we were in our mid-20s, you could buy an ounce of gold for like 500 bucks. Um, which obviously the end, you know, always wanted to buy more, but you know, so you should think about hedging your overall financial uh, situation with actually buying some physical gold. I'm not a gold expert. Um, certainly not somebody who's going to tell you to, you know, do this or that, the other thing with your money. Yeah. But you know, absolutely diversify and think about having, I would just, you know, 90 days in cash and then 90 days of cash equivalent in the form of gold. And also you can buy silver too. So gold and silver appear to be um, something that's going to be a great investment. A lot of these guys are theorizing, again, a lot of them sell gold, so keep that in mind. But a lot of them are theorizing that gold's going to go up to $3,000 an ounce towards the end of the year, if not the end of first quarter. And I heard Jim Rickards say that he thought gold was going to be $10,000 an ounce within three years. Wow. And right now it's trading, I think, 1830 or 1827 or something. Yeah. So do consider gold. Now, talking about the new stimulus. So mm-hmm. this coming week, there's supposed to be stimulus 47.3. Right. <laughs> Who the hell knows, right? Know. Coming out. And, and the new stimulus. Are you Googling for information? I've got that article you sent me about the Oh, boy. Julie's got it. You guys got to listen to this. You won't believe it. Are you <laughs> this just, is just crazy. How about okay. a paid vacation? Who wants a paid vacation? We got it coming. Well, we, we said we'd create something for them to come to if this happens. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, this is, again, this is being floated around. Hasn't been voted in yet. But on Monday of this week, Senator Marca, Martha McSally introduced the American Tax Rebate and Incentive Program, which uh, incidentally is nicknamed TRIP. Tax Rebate me? and Incentive Program, T R I P. What I'm curious, what comes first? The word and then <laughs> Definitely they... the acronym. Yeah, the acronym. Let's well, figure that out. Th- the word before it's an acronym. Oh, my and then goodness. exactly. That's hilarious. It, that it essentially offers a you, tax credit. And you have to admit, the Democrats have an they're absolutely oh, they're way w- better at it. Way better at the acronyms. We definitely. I right. mean it's unbelievable how good they are coming up they it's I so creative the CARES Act. The CARES Act. I mean, Who's going to argue with that? Nobody. Followed by the HEROES Act. The HEROES Act. What do you? Now we have the TRIP Act. What, you're not going to vote for the HEROES Act? You yeah. asshole, of course you are. Right? How about this one? The TRIP Act that essentially <laughs> offers a tax credit of $4,000 per adult to take a vacation at least 50 miles away from home. For couples, it increases to 8000 plus you get an additional 500 bucks for each qualifying child. The list of eligible expenses is fairly broad and includes food and beverages, lodging, transportation, live entertainment events, and expenses related to attending a conference or business meeting. You just have to travel at least 50 miles away from home, stay within the United States, and it can include your own vacation home, but then you're not able to deduct the cost of lodging. There's no income limitation. This would apply to anyone and everyone who wanted to claim it. Isn't that hilarious? If it passed, it would be retroactive to the start of the year and last until the end of 2022. So, yes, if that does pass, uh, we will be doing a conference someplace and you all will be invited and you will be able to write it off uh, on your taxes and in a very meaningful way. But, of course, from business perspective, they could have done that anyway to go to a conference. So maybe that's not so appealing. There's even a competing act, which is called the Explore America Tax Credit Act. Now, now, I guarantee you that one's written by a Republican because there is no clever acronym. Yeah. And it only applies to 50 percent of travel expenses and expenses over $50. (laughs) 
so yeah <laughs> interesting um it eventually wants to help tourism so you know they're trying but that that'll be interesting so we'll have to give you guys a nice place to spend that yeah assuming it actually happens but in the meantime we'll be paying attention and talking crazy about time, that on right? our podcast this week yeah really isn't that crazy well but that i mean just, guys just think how batshit crazy it is with julie just read so throwing a, money around a tax credit so what does that mean they're not sending you the money to go on vacation but if you happen to oh let's say you have a family of four and you're married and let's say you know eat you and your partner right that's there's eight thousand dollars and you have two kids well there's another thousand dollars so now you have nine thousand dollars to go on a vacation and you have to move you have to vacation 50 miles from your house and you can write the whole thing off but here's the problem the damn pandemic is coming back so where the hell you gotta go I know. Well, we just got reshut down a lot of, not completely, but uh, yeah, cases are on the rise again. You mean in Puerto Rico? In Puerto Rico, yeah. yeah. And a lot of places in the country. So there you are. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's what we're thinking about these days. Well, I mean, really, as far as this pandemic goes, it's going to, it's real, it's crazy. Again, who predicted this would happen? Oh, I know, Julie well, and I. Yeah. But, you know, as it came back in the fall, um, until there's a, a viable therapy or a vaccine which probably won't happen until middle of next year um don't believe the headlines because even as these vaccines come out there or at least as the proposals of these vaccines come out it looks like there's three or four of these pharmaceutical companies that are all uh competing to come out with the vaccine the fur uh, the quickest and i i i mean i was thinking about that yesterday too mm -hmm. how amazing is it like vaccines normally take forever to come out with yeah you just and it's one of these things that one day we'll have you know you and your grandchildren will have a vaccine for yep. polio you know? know and it takes decades and decades and the um you know trump administration the government said and i'm pretty operation sure this, warp speed operation warp speed and they said whoever comes out with a vaccine the first i think they're going to have an exclusive contract for distribution of it where mm -hmm. they could basically lock in their profit i believe from the they all have these deals already signed that if they win the race that they get uh something like two billion doses whatever that's yeah worth, exactly you know? and there, that the government's going to pay for it. there is some hope for that i read an article this morning that you know they're starting to get into the second phase of trials but you know again who knows what the timing of that's going to be what it, what it's meant for me and a lot of our friends and a lot of our coaching clients because these are the the preceding weeks to school going back I think you're going to see a lot of school policies being changed. You're seeing that almost on a daily basis. Who's going back? Who's going back every other day, every other week? Virtual, half virtual. Some of them are delaying the opening until September. So there is no consistent, you know, back to school week, you know, in terms of how you're doing it or when you're doing it this year. And I think you're going to see a lot of changes over the next few weeks on that. I really don't see, I can't imagine a future where you're going to have anything that even remotely well, resembles. soon. I, you know what convinced me? We were, that even remotely resembles basically. Normal this, school. Yeah. And yeah. I can't see it ever happening again. How would it happen? Well, I, I think if there's a vaccine and I think that, you know, I think it'll be at least a year or two minimum. Why would it happen though if after people have enjoyed essentially, it, the only reason it would happen it's is for economic reasons because not everybody daycare. can do it. That's why. That's why. Because people need daycare. That's the only reason yeah. it would actually happen. Well, that's that's the great disruptor right now is right. that people are scrambling, you know, uh, if I have to quit my job to stay home, take care of my kid who can't or won't or shouldn't go to school, then what does that do to the economy? And I've read a lot of economic reports that that's that's like a hidden factor that we're going to see third quarter. Yeah, but what is people? How know, many how many people have how many families have two working? I mean, you and I've always been two working, right? How many people? How many families have two working adults in the house, mm -hmm. right? 
that if the kids, if they didn't have the expense of living where they live to go to the schools that they go to, incurring the property taxes, what we talked about last week and the week before, yeah. incurring the property taxes they're incurring, incurring the state taxes they're incurring, incurring the expense of lifestyle, the added hassle and stress sure. of having to take the kid to school every day, all this sort of institutionalized, this is just the way it's supposed to be expenses. If you were to remove all of that, the obvious expenses and the un- and less obvious expenses, the stress and strain. I really truly wonder how many people are going to take the time and say, you know what, Johnny and Susie have been doing really kick ass on, uh, you know, at Zoom U, right. <laughs> you know, and taking virtual classes. And, and I'm wondering whether or not I still want to, you know, maybe there is no private tuition. Your kids go to public schools, but there's still a cost, right? Yeah. So how many people are actually going to take a hard look and say, maybe this whole way that we've structured our lives is existing only because there was it here. I'll give you guys a good example. When Julie and I sold real estate. There were no flat screen TVs. So you'd walk into a family room and you would see this monolithic, huge ass piece of furniture that looked like some armoire that had been on like, that needs to go on a huge diet, right? Entertainment center. Entertainment center. And it looked like, and sometimes they'd put it behind doors. And even if you had this huge family room, you'd have this big, huge thing because, you know, hidden within is this big, huge, fat TV. And this huge TV was, you guys, maybe, you know, you know it's so funny. They, I, some of them don't. I know. A lot so, of them don't. Somebody so don't. Millennials are like, you put a TV in a piece of furniture? Right. I know. Well, there was life before remote control. Well. That's, that's even ancient. Yeah, you're making us seem really old now. <laughs> there were remote yeah. control, controls. I didn't have one. We didn't have one. We had yeah, a black I and white remember, TV. I remember actually having to get off the couch. You spoiled to, middle class to, girl. You had a TV, no, a no, remote. Not until I was probably... It was called your younger sister. It was called Amy. Well, that's true. <laughs> Amy, yeah, change the channel. <laughs> exactly. No, no, but I remember having four channels to click and click for a while. Anyway, what is our point of this? Well, so the point is, is well, you didn't know where I was going with that. I was no, making I a really good analogy. Go ahead. I know. Sorry. I know you're trying to figure it out. Better be good. You're, you're giving me a very concerned <laughs> link, a look because you think I'm like way okay. off on the ledge and I'm just falling off. It's all right. You like where I'm going with this. It's good. All right, so now you walk, you walk into that same house, and obviously that big, huge, ugly sort of eyesore has been removed because the technology has made it so the TVs can now be hung on the wall. And so you would never in a billion years go back to building this big, huge, time-sucking, energy-wasting, you know, visually horrible, essentially this room around this big-ass, huge armoire. And you just guys, that's just something to put it to frame it out. How many of you are going to want to ever go back to big ass ugly TVs? None of you will. You you can get a nice plasma flat screen TV from Costco. You can get a huge ass OLED, like 4K, unbelievably brilliant, just insane TV from Costco for like, you know, 2,500 bucks or for you can get one that's not so big for like, you know, a thousand dollars, right? And I'm just wondering, in the back of my mind, I'm wondering how many people don't realize that with regards to a lot of the conventional thinking that we have about, for example, commercial real estate, where we have about, um, you know, schools. Schools, I think, frankly, schools and colleges are, are one of the biggest absolute misdirections of money in our modern civilization that there is full stop. I really do. The amount of money that's being spent to support the structure all the way from the cost of the buildings to the property taxes that goes to you know pay for it to the people that are having to spend extra time and energy to pay for it uh, all the people that are you know just all the expenses all and then you work, you scale this up to college and you think of how much college costs for these degrees and nothing and all these you know I get it 
it it, it was a time that's a romantic notion from the past but is it really relevant now do you do you guys really want to go back to that i, I do in a way because i love the idea of zoe playing with her friends on the playground and watching zoe graduate and you know thinking about her and her little snoopy lunchbox and yes she has one and i love the idea of her existence being similar to what julie and i's was when we were growing up i didn't have a snoopy lunchbox of course julie had five of them you had to eat bugs i had to eat bugs that's right <laughs> i had a paper bag that i had to reuse true story julie's making fun of me <laughs> so <laughs> but uh. th- would you guys ever go back would you go back to you know thinking and living like that will you go back you know, we have conversations with coaching clients and with friends. I have a friend in a coaching client whose kids got accepted. He's got three kids, and basically all three of them, get this, guys, have been pre-accepted to Ivy League colleges, and one of them's already being courted by, what's the military academy? West Point. West Point, yeah. And the nice, awesome. thing, the nice thing, and West Point is just as prestigious as the Ivy Leagues. So the, here's the difference. The Ivy Leagues, he'd have to pay fifty to $60,000 a year for Harvard for an undergraduate degree. So an undergraduate degree would cost $200,000. Now, here's what, here's what Harvard's done. Harvard has said, we're not allowing kids to go back to school. It's all going to be done online, um, but you still have to pay $50,000. How does that even freaking that, make that sense? Is the trend. That's not just Harvard. That's very common. It seems to be uh, the stance that you know private schools are taking. But how long are people going to put up with that? Well, I've had a lot of our coaching clients say to their kids who are in year one, two, or three of college, I'm not paying for your virtual school. No, it's crazy. It's and, insane. You know, I think a lot of that's because it, I'm sure it depends on what they're studying, right? So you don't want people who are going to be doctors learning their doctoring on YouTube. I get that. But a vast majority but of undergrads. But the vast majority right. who are in BA or, you know, BS degrees are, you know, you if we didn't have all of these online resources, there wouldn't be an argument against that. So some of our coaching clients, here's, here's a hack for the, all of this. If you have a junior or senior in high school, a lot of them are looking into early testing for early graduation to skip the whole conversation and then work for a year while COVID works its way out and then make your decision about college later. But that the assumption they is, got the option. But the assumption is that COVID will work itself out and there won't be something else that's going to replace COVID. Sure. Even if there's not another virus to replace COVID, the genie you cannot put it back in the bottle is the inefficiencies that people have discovered because yeah. of COVID. Sure. And once true. the when, once people realize that, that again you and I have had this conversation because we have a six and a half year old, right? Mm-hmm. And I wanted to go to first grade. I wanted to have that experience, but I'm really questioning the sanity of it all. Yeah. If you had two or three Especially kids. Especially after the Zoom call that I just saw. Yeah. Well, exactly. The sort of the variants, well, the hacks they're trying to put together. It's the protocols that I think, especially now when the cases are high, and we're not even in a massive hotbed. We're just no. in kind of an average scenario. The protocol and the what happens if questions are just never ending. Like the actual logistics of it. One one person asked, well, what if two of the, there's, there's four first grade teachers amongst, I don't know, 60 kids or something. What if two of the teachers are sick? We have a, a lack of teacher supply right now because everybody's hired tutors and all the teachers have bailed, you know? Um, what if one of the kids in her class tests positive and is asymptomatic? Do all the kids go quarantine now? Like, it's never-ending. Right. What if one of the parents comes back well, look, and exposes the kid who exposed your kid? You know, it's just, like, not realistic. I so what is your sense of you're basically the the uh, CEO of Zoe's educational direction? What did you decide? Well, so her school has the option of either they think they're going back 
in, what is it, about three weeks now. And so there's an option of going live. After that Zoom call, there's no way in hell I'm going to let her go live just because of the questions and of the what ifs. And because we have your mom living with us and it's not worth exposing her. Yeah, mom's 80. Okay. Um, But even if that weren't true, I would be doing the distance learning through the school because I like the curriculum and all that and it's all nicely organized. Can can I level you off? But I'm going to try that for a quarter and see how all of that goes. Because if it is not any superior, if it's not superior to the apps I already know about, right. and the accreditation that you can get online now, at least for elementary school, okay, and obviously you can do it for college too. If it's not superior to that after one quarter, then we'll just go regular homeschool, with the exception of if by some miracle everybody just gets vaccinated and the you know the virus just goes away, which you know isn't going to happen. Right. But you know, barring some miracle. It better be better. It better be superior to what I can put together on my own. Otherwise, it's not going to be worth it. So I read a, it's pivoting away from the school thing. Yeah. What so uh, no, it was good. I appreciate yeah. it. I could tell that was not a decision that was easy for you to make because yeah. it kind of goes against your very DNA totally. since you were raised by school teachers. Yes, but don't forget I'm also a hypochondriac, so that plays <laughs> right into it. <laughs> it does. <laughs> so. And I, I mean, okay, so here was part of it. So I just didn't You guys just heard Julie admit two things. Okay. That she's a hypochondriac, which she never admits to me as much as I make fun of her about being a hypochondriac. And two, that she's going to basically embrace homeschooling. And well, if, you've been listening to our, if you've been listening maybe. to our Sunday podcast, I've been bringing this up. And I think you guys have known what my opinion on it was. I, that, you know what? That's a big commitment with our kid. Yeah, because she's Looney Tunes. Yep. Yeah, she is. Um, commercial... Commercial. Oh, you have another. Well, what I was going to say is just just the logistics of their now pre-K and first grade are not required to wear masks. Okay, but starting with second grade up, they are. Can you imagine making kids wear masks? Like, that's not going to happen. I I just that alone. I'm like, I'm out. That's it. Anyway, commercial real estate. Well, look. So to your point, look how much. What Zoe was literally sick every two weeks, and Basically. and with strep throat. I mean, she had. I didn't even know there were this many many variants of these many freaking viruses. She probably had strep six times. Yeah, and we quarter. ended up having at least she once missed, each. I got her report card. It, they keep track. She missed fifty days of the first semester, so it is kind of a miracle she can actually read. But <laughs> you know. That's all right. And she can. She can. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of digging. And I've heard a lot of moms say that, that their kids haven't been as sick or sick as frequently or sick, you know, with the same stuff. So that's good. You know, there's some upside to it. And honestly, I think with the younger kids, there's probably, I'm sure that there's more benefit. And I, I know, you know, some of you guys have to go back to work. I know this isn't an option for everybody. But I think for the younger kids, there's an advantage to being at home with their their. But how many of them are working in the first place, honestly? Because or can't. Well, how many of them are working in the first place just to support the infrastructure? Or their spouses if they're in real estate or whatever. But I mean, my earlier point though, if if you all of a sudden didn't have, if this is the reason that people are moving out of the cities, one of the many reasons. Well, I mean, I'm following you because one of my motivations to wanting to believe that's probably true is we're going to get some more inventory out of that. Would Which your parents good. have both worked when you were a kid if they didn't have the expenses they had from living where no. you guys lived? No, I don't no. Think so. no, no. And your mom was definitely someone who would de- have championed she, the she more went, left-leaning know. sort of, you know. Well, she did take off twelve years between the three of us, 
So, but I get your point. Plus, you may have gone back to school just to escape you guys. No doubt. There were three of us. <laughs> <laughs> your parents, too. Well, I do hear that with people with multiple kids. They're like, hell no, they're going back. I know, me too. They're like, show them the door. Here's my foot. <laughs> so I get, I do understand both sides. Run from the COVID if you see it, Susie. I know, right? <laughs> Don't play with sticky kids. You know what know. might be a boom business after this is rehab houses for all the adult, adults that have been day drinking. No doubt, right? <laughs> rehab house slash homeschool? I don't know. Huh. Yeah. Oh, you know what? We should start an online homeschool thing to keep people from drinking. Yeah. Okay. Good. All right. Well, moving on. Commercial space. Yes. So we have a lot of, um, in our EXP group, Julie and I are um, proudly associated with EXP Realty. It's definitely, I could talk about EXP forever. It's so amazing. We'll We'll talk about it in a second. Mm -hmm. But um, we just brought on some uh, agents who primarily focus on commercial. And Mm -hmm. EXP is building a very robust commercial division. And we were talking about, they were telling me about their listings and they were telling me about some of these. One of them was very, you know, sketchy as far as what's going to happen with this commercial inventory, his leases. A lot of these commercial guys, they, you know, obviously do a lot of leasing. And he was, guess where, in, in the Silicon Valley area, in the San Jose area. And he said that his market for the commercial guys are scared crapless because these companies are still making their lease payments. But a lot of them have let it be known that when the leases are up, they're going to be not releasing space mm-hmm. that they're essentially having all their employees go virtual and you're mm-hmm. seeing more i read an article this morning actually that was talking about and i didn't i'd never even heard of this company i should have but it was a company that allows it's uh, essentially an sas software as a service that allows you to have your entire customer service staff in all varying levels of sophistication to be um, essentially home-based now, you're saying, well, that seems like, doesn't seem like that big of a yeah. reach. But the thing that was holding it back before wasn't people's wanting to go to some big call center or it wasn't even necessarily a software. What was holding it back was the belief that you had to have all your people sitting in cubicles doing customer mm, service right. so you could just keep an eye on them. It was just sort of this outmolded idea from God knows when, you know, the Industrial Revolution. And now they're saying, well, you know what? If people are as efficient as they would have been at work, if not more efficient, and we could still monitor them and you know maintain a certain level of quality as far as sure. customer service. Why the hell do we want to have? Okay, as soon as they make that decision, then all of a sudden you're having all these people quit the jobs that would have hypothetically been requiring them to go back to the call centers. And now they're saying, guess what? I'm going to work from home and I'm going to work for this company. And it also mm-hmm. opens the globe for these companies now to be able to look for staff to hire. Um, That's true. You know, it gives them a lot more flexibility. And I think you're going to see a lot of that decision-making happen because... It's returning, is the point, though. It's returning from the Philippines. It's coming back from the foreign countries that have been the offshore... You know the India, uh, you know India, and countries like that, where a lot now of countries we're now work. It's all going to be essentially. You're seeing that business, that industry, essentially re- reestablish itself in the United States. Um, and again, this is uh, because a lot of these countries are not necessarily going to handle the pandemic the way we are, and they're not necessarily going to have the actual infrastructure to have people work out of their houses. Uh, so if you are living in a, a country in like the Philippines or you know India where your internet connection in residential areas is real janky, then you're probably not going to feel too comfortable essentially leaving your business you know that exposed to aging or not existing infrastructure. Whereas in the United States, we don't have that problem. So you're going to see all kinds of again unpredicted changes. But when you think about commercial real estate as a whole. That, to me, if you think about areas that's going to be, and I don't think the the Fed, as far as I know, isn't buying commercial paper for for that. Yeah. 
So there well, you're going to see. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure on those businesses that are paying leases in commercial space. They're required to make the retrofitting expenditure. Exactly. There's capital expenditure there to get all that plexiglass in between people and put all your stickers on the floor for six foot distancing. And, and furthermore, if they spread people out like that, can they even support their actual business structure with fewer people because they're required to have fewer people in their actual space? So there's so many side conversations about this. You know, I had a coaching client that uh, lost a, a um, they had a, I believe it was a buyer, and I can't remember which side they were on, but it was for a $2.2 million commercial space, had been in contract during COVID. Before they were able to close, during underwriting, the, the commercial lender came back and said, nope, we're only going to al allow you to close this if it's at 1.8, not 2.2. Yeah. And the question was why? Because we just did a BPO in that kind of space, and we don't think it's worth 2.2 anymore. Yep. So you either take 1.8, or we don't close you. And the deal tanked over it. Yep. They're so. going to see more and more things like that start to happen, so just be wary of it. Um, I do want to talk about EXP, because I had a lot of really yeah, great EXP sure. experiences this Absolutely. week. Absolutely. I did. I had a lot of amazing brokers and amazing agent conversations. I had so many... Uh, you know, it's funny. I had two or three conversations for people I talked to about EXP over a year ago where they didn't say no. They just said no right now. And now they're texting and calling me and say, hey, Tim, let's dust that conversation off. Mm -hmm. You know, tell me more about this or tell me more about that. Um, and if you guys are like looking forward to where the puck is going to be as far as opportunities go, uh, there's, you know, it's easier to point out where the puck probably won't be, like we were just discussing with commercial real estate and maybe sort of the institutions that people have just sort of, you know, labored needlessly to try to continue to pay for, you know, like institutionalized school system, government schools, basically. Maybe all those things now are going to be in flux. Who knows? Seems like they will be. Commercial real estate. Um, viability of a lot of things that all of us have taken for granted. And again, even if there is a cure or a, a viable therapy and people aren't wearing masks anymore, the essentially the genie is out of the bottle with the fact that there is a an alternative to some of these expensive infrastructures and expensive you know, modus of operandi that we've been just living with forever that we don't have to live with anymore. And I think that's not going to be something people are going to be so willing to give up. How many of you guys who are having all of your things delivered, right? Hmm. You know, we have somebody that goes to Costco for us and it doesn't matter what they're picking up. It's 50 bucks or 60 bucks to go to Costco for us. That's worth it to us not to have to go there, not to have to risk, I'm not frankly, going back on that. No way. Not to have to risk uh, bringing home something and exposing my mom to it. You know, again, she's 80. She's right in that horrible zone for getting, you know, the mm -hmm. you know virus so yeah that's the thing that i find to be very interesting and the other thing that's never going to go back are traditional real estate um brokerages they're done real estate brokerages were i was talking to this week a, a person who owns i don't even want to say what the franchise is but there was a, a person who has full ownership and partial ownership of a very large national real estate brand in every single case their net large real estate brand has been able to put pressures on them for years about agent count. So they've been getting the screws put to them constantly. The threat would be, in essence, the thinly veiled threat is if you don't increase your agent count, you are going to not renew your franchise. Yes, you may have put all this expense out. Yes, you may have basically have signed over personally for you know that office space and all the copiers and whatnot. But it doesn't matter if you don't increase your agent count. We're going to you know essentially we're not going to possibly renew your franchise and you're just going to be screwed out of business. Well, when you look at these as a great controversy that Inman blew up yes last year, right? it was where they were talking about all these fake 
agent counts. And I think Keller Williams was um, accused, I don't know if it was true or not, I think it was, of having the most number of ghost agents. If I remember correctly, that's what the article was. So Keller Williams was saying, we have 160,000 ghost agents. And all these agents that were at Keller Williams that no longer were at Keller Williams, they went to, say, EXP, they were saying, well, I am still listed as a Keller Williams agent, even though I haven't been there for a year or two or three. So the thesis was, and it turned out to have been true, that Keller Williams or the franchise holders or the region holders, whoever, was they weren't actually talking about the fact that these that their agent counts were artificially inflated. The belief was, at least what I've been told was, is that, and by the way, the person that was talking with me wasn't on a Keller Williams franchise holder. I'm just giving you guys an example. Mm-hmm. But in this particular, you know, the explanation was is because these franchises were, the offices were put under so much pressure to continuously add agents, the worst thing that they'd want to do is remove agents because then obviously they'd have to replace it. So they would report back to the mothership that their agent count was higher than it was. Anyway, I don't know if any of that's true or not, but that's the type of shenanigans that have been happening with regards to agent count. Why? Because if you're not growing in any business, you're dying. And so if you're publicly traded, which Keller Williams isn't, but this franchise I was just telling you about is. So if all of a sudden a franchise is starting to talk about that they're not adding agent count, agent count is one of the key criteria for valuing a broker. So if you're publicly traded and your agent count is not increasing or let, or worst case, if it's decreasing, well, then your stock value is probably going to decrease too. You look like yesterday's news and people are going to just absolutely pile out of your particular um, security. And that's, again, maybe another reason why so many uh, of these big brokerages have been inflating agent count. So I'm on this phone call with this guy that you know has ownership and partial ownership of a franchise and he later the second conversation with us the guy and his wife and there i essentially was having a conversation answering all their questions about why they want to uh, go to exp and what the advantages are and you know they had previously told me that their franchise agreements are all up either they're like month to month or they're within like you know 10 seconds from expiring otherwise had they not told me that i would have told them that i can't have conversations with them until their franchise agreements are up or I at least would have given them generalized information. I wouldn't have solicited them because they were under agreements with their franchise holders. But in this particular case, they started telling me that they've been getting so much pressure up until about, guess what, 90 days ago to continuously add agents to, you know, basically that for fear of losing their franchises, that this is the first time that they've actually been able to come up from, you know, being under that constant, you know, thumb of pressure of fear of loss of losing their franchise that they're now saying, you know what, we're taking a real hard look at the numbers from this particular franchise and they actually don't even make sense. They never made sense. Maybe they made sense when we originally got involved, but we just stayed involved because that's who we were. That's what we did. We're, you know, Bob and Betty and we own these franchises and, you know, we're partial owners of these other franchises and we own real estate offices, but they never actually took the, took the, a second off to look at the math of what they had invested their life energy in and the opportunities that were getting by them. And so what caused them and what's forcing so many brokerages to say, and agents really, agents are the big surge, the brokerages are following the agents. But what's causing all these people to take a real hard look is because they're scared shitless because of what just happened because of the pandemic. And and with no money coming in, and what was it? Who was it that did that great report that said, they reported all the biggest real estate oh, brokerages that you took money that, the ppp money yeah yeah there were thousands of them everybody right so if yeah. it, remember we were talking earlier about the Big fed names and small right we were talking about the fed supporting business well the ppp loans to the sba I, oh gosh who was it the de- jeremy brandt wasn't it that sounds right yeah I cash so. i forget the name is yeah jeremy brandt did this research 
of he went through the total list of all the PPP grant, uh, you know, people got the PPP loans, right? And he then published it. It's on our website talking about, or you can just Google Jeremy Brandt PPP recipients, and then you can see this report. But the number of brokerages that got money from the PPP was like pretty much all of them. Mm-hmm. And some of it was a little 20 grand. Some of them were getting millions. And the money that they're getting from the PPP, had it not been, probably they all would have gone out of business because most brokerages have no money. Most brokerages operate maybe 60 days to 60 day cycles. Now, when that cash flow stops flowing, then they still have those bills that are due. Then they have still the leases that are due. Then all the fixed costs that are due. And then they start saying, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And the mistake that a lot of the brokerages, and brokerage, if you're listening now, don't make this mistake. The mistake that a lot of them are going to do is they're going to start tapping personal resources or putting themselves on essentially personally obligated for the corporate debt. And if you guys do that, thinking that the clouds are going to, the skies are going to clear and the clouds are going to move out and it's going to be sunshine and you know tulips tomorrow, you're making an enormous mistake. Your most brokerages in the country, guys, make two to three percent net. That's it. They hardly make any money. Now, if you take that away because the market's not going in the right direction, it does not take but maybe a matter of months for them to be completely out of business. Ninety days, one hundred ninety day, one hundred eighty days, and that's if they're borrowing money. Now, you you know, enter in the Fed with these PPP loans. Maybe they do it again. Maybe they don't do it again. Who knows? But you're going to see a lot of these brokerages wash out. The teams are going to wash out. Individual agents are going to wash out. Because their cost structure is too high. You know, if you look at, for example, I remember when Julie and I sold real estate and our accountant, Fred, would come over, right? And he'd do the numbers with us and he showed, showed us where all of our expenses mm-hmm. were. Now, we were at Remax at the time and this was before Remax took a percent. Um, but our greatest percent of our, our money, our revenue, always went to taxes and always went to basically brokerage fees. And our brokerage fees weren't even that high. Nope. And some states, when some markets, like I'm talking with, one of the top five people, I won't say, oh, well, I will say Berkshire Hathaway, and one of the top five teams who I've known for a long time, they sell a ton of houses, to, you know, over $100 million a year. Well, they, you know, through a series of conversations over the past year, have finally decided to take a hard look to what they've been paying Berkshire Hathaway. And the m- amount of money is, it, they're, you know, wanted to argue with me about it. Well, we were on the best commission split. It's a super secret commission split. It was like 93 or 94%, which at Berkshire is, you know, not normal. Oh, well, what about the 6% franchise fee or whatever you call it? Well, is that not a commission split? And then we, right. you know, figured out their actual math and how much money they paid. It was millions of dollars over the last like five or six years. And so many of you guys are in the same situation. Now, if you're on the, if you're, a, and I understand why. The franchise has to charge them that much because the franchise itself costs that much for for them to have the franchise. But right now, because of this, just like every other business and every other family, everyone's taking a hard look at really, well, why are we paying for this? What am I getting for this? Mm -hmm. Is this brand that I'm associating myself with really worth what I'm paying for? Do I really need a big flashy real estate brand? Are these things, why, why do I think these things are important, right? These are the conversations that all of you guys need to have because we're right now in what it feels like to me and Julie, we're in the eye of the storm, right? Mm-hmm. The eye of the storm is where, you know, you guys hopefully know what it is. But in essence, imagine a big, like, what would it be? Donut, right? And the eye of the storm is the center of the donut where there's no storm. So we're in the eye of the storm right now, but the storm is going to come back in the form of the pandemic, in the form of political and social unrest, in the form of you know, evidently, if you believe a lot of the guys we've been sharing with you guys um, uh, in form of currency disruption and the form of all kinds of just crazy things happening over the next, you know, probably at least a year. Some people are saying five years. Are you positioned for that? 
There's no way you are. It just isn't. If you're still stuck under the, you know, operating on your old software program with the belief that you need an institutionalized structure, real estate office, brokerage, phone systems, and everyone comes into the office and the big fancy, you know, paid for brand matters. No, it doesn't. None of that stuff matters. Consumers don't care. They don't go to their offices. Yeah, they don't. Not anymore. Brokers don't even go to the office that they're paying for. And if they do, they don't know how to work the technology if there's technology. Well, it is kind of complicated, a lot of it, honestly. I know. I know. But the point is that what are you really getting? And I think you make a good point that many of them just... And I've always thought this was weird, too, that whole, well, what about the 8% off the top, the 6% off the top? It's like... It's not a commission split. What the hell is it, then? It's not your money, but, you you know, it went away. Yeah, It went away. Exactly. It doesn't matter what you called it. Quit ignoring the fact that it's gone. That's the reason brokers... I think it's crazy. Brokers never have this conversation with themselves, yeah. so they're almost forgiven for never having this conversation with their agents. Mm-hmm. They never have a conversation where they sit down and they say, well, this is how much you actually grossed, and this is how much you actually kept, and this is how much you actually kept after your expenses in your taxes because if you guys were to see what your real numbers were you'd be flabbergasted well we were when and when we were at three max our, our franchise fees were not even that bad no we were in a pretty good scenario overall but we still had expenses and we were still flabbergasted well it's the taxes really, where know, we live too to, but you've got to watch your own numbers you can't just assume that well julie that was know. remax when you paid a flat fee when right. julie and i were remax yeah. agents we paid 800 bucks a month no commission split Nowadays, that doesn't that exist was anymore. Cheap back then. No, it's really cheap. Yeah. Now that doesn't exist anymore. Nowadays, they have a commission I split. I know. And they have to pay a monthly fee. It's just like a normal brokerage. Yep. Yep. There's no difference, really. I know. You know but, but you do have to put on your own oxygen mask first. And I think to not have an honest conversation about the benefits to EXP, you are doing yourself harm. You, you know, you're being financially irresponsible by not knowing about it. I truly believe that. So many of the people that we've introduced to EXP that have become part of our EXP group in the past year, 18 months, I have, I cannot tell you how happy it sincerely makes me. It's the worst thing. Happy is a weak word. What is it? Um, it's not even proud. I don't know. I feel. I don't even know what the word. Help me out with that. You're the supposed. You're, you're supposed. Enthusiastic, to, supportive. Well, when proud. I get an email or a text from somebody who said, for example, this is the first time. I've entered into a shitty market where, or, you know, a, a turbulent market where I'm not nervous or fearful because A, I know what to do because you're coaching, but B, I know what to do because I've got money coming in through various added revenue sources from EXP. Revenue share, you know, the stock is what doubled in value this year. And this is the first time I've had savings. I'm hearing that from yeah, a lot of people. Too. I've gotten so many. Like I can tell when they were writing it, they were either emotional on the edge of being emotional when they were writing it. For me to read that, I, I mean, I know where it comes from because, you know, when we were growing, when my family was, you know, we had no money and we were always, you know, you one form or another of being broke. And I totally and completely, urgently, immediately feel that emotion of, mm-hmm. um, it's what's driven us really. I mean, sure. my quest for never wanting to be poor has probably been the thing that's gotten us quick, you know, that is true. right. It's been the, uh, the, uh, the, Nitrogen oxide it's a tank. Good motivation. More people should have it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's the blessing of having grown up poor, basically. Well, that's but, true. But I, when I get those emails from these agents, and I just hear them say, "Look, it could." Some of them are making enough to partially cover their bills. Some of them are covering uh, maybe a car payment. Some of them are covering their house payment. I've had a number of people tol- telling me that they're covering the cost of their kids' college. To which I always respond back, "Are you sure that's the smartest move?" But whatever. You know, right. a, a lot of people that are some people that are getting to the point where they're covering all their personal overhead from just revenue yes. share from EXP. 
Uh, and so it'd be like, essentially, guys, you still sell houses. You still make money from doing what you're doing. And maybe you have a spouse with or a partner with a different source of income. That's fine. But then you have another source of income that comes from revenue share that just shows up every month around the 20th. It gets wired to you and it could be hundreds month at first. It can out. be, I mean, our first revenue share check at uh, EXP was $87.50, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and now it's significantly more and i have just it's so exciting for me to see so many people developing this different sense of what it means to be it's it's the whole series of podcasts we did a couple weeks ago about being free yes and it also is the definition of rich is where your money's working for you and you're not working for it anymore when it comes in like clockwork because of your past performance and i have to say you know until the exp model as a real estate professional, you had your commission checks, you could create some regular cash flow from BPOs, but you're still doing work equals income, okay? And you could build up your rental portfolio. Those were your options of getting anywhere close to even semi-passive, because owning rentals is not passive, really. I don't think the rental, it, it's let's talk about comparison, that. It's comparison, really, yeah. if you look at it. But I, all I'm saying is until EXP, these were your options. Well, again, I, I'm gonna kind of, we're gonna ebb and flow like we always do on Sunday. So rental properties, I think the investment thesis of rental properties nowadays sucks. Yeah. I well, do. Prices are too much. Even on multifamilies. And I have multifamily people that try to you know, yeah. argue with me about why are you guys buying single families. We like single families because a whole bunch of reasons. The biggest one being that they're easier, easy as heck to rent. Like yeah, way easier to sell than something. Ways we've never sold any, but you know the one we did actually sell our, our house that we bought when we were twenty two and twenty three, which we wish we would have kept. You know, but rental properties as an investment thesis, I think, are really going to be challenged. And the reason they're going to be challenged is because you're going to have property taxes going to go through the roof. The easy button for the city in which you have your rental properties to make up for lost revenues from COVID, because they're not getting a bailout from the Fed, is going to be increased property taxes. And that is what's going to happen. If you're in a state that has income taxes, you're going to have an increase in income taxes next year. I think it's baked in. So if yeah. you're, you know, a lot of people buy rental properties with, oh my gosh, if I can just make a hundred bucks, then, you know, 10 years passes then I can make 300 bucks. Well, yeah. what happens if your property taxes goes up by a thousand bucks or 2000 bucks? Well, okay. All you have to do to eliminate the, I want to make a hundred bucks a month is be vacant for one month with a $1,200 a month rental payment. Exactly. You're exactly. Not, I mean, regardless of, you're right about the taxes, but you know, it, it's not a walk in the park. And buying rental properties with the idea that the payoff is going to be on the appreciation and that ha- that has worked in some markets, that's a really crappy way to think about investing real estate because that's really 100% speculative. Yeah. The really only two reasons why you buy real estate are because of you have depreciation on your taxes, which may or may not be relevant to you. And which, you know, frankly, if you're a real, professional real estate investor, it's definitely real estate. And, and, Irrelevant, a good thing to do. But number two, it's off the idea that you're going to have cash flow. Many of you buy rental properties with no cash flow because you didn't have enough cash to put down to get cash flow. What happens if the rental properties you have have no cash flow? What if you're now having to chip in money because your cost structure, taxes and whatnot have increased? And, you know, you can keep on throwing the what ifs, but that's all the, those are the conversations that you guys need to be having. If you have a marginal, if not a, you know, a, a rental property that you're having to subsidize every month, you might want to think about putting that on the market right now and getting your money out of it because it's probably going to be the best time to sell anything in probably the next at least maybe year to five years. I would strongly encourage you to do that. But our thesis, what we did is we bought rental properties and we bought dozens of rental properties and we still have them in, I don't know, five or six different states. Mm-hmm. And 
if you are wondering, like, is now a good time to buy real estate? Are we buying real estate? Nope. And I don't. And the reason is, is the uncertainty. Your price is going to go up. Price is going to go down. But the biggest reason is, is because I don't think. Well, I know we don't. We don't want anymore. No, we, we don't. If you're involved with the XP, you don't need them anymore. Yeah, because if you, for example, for you to have like, well, I'll give you guys a real good example. So Julie and I have, uh, we bought a, um, I'll give you for example, in Clintonville, Ohio, 43214. We would have bought a rental property for say 120 grand. And let's say that property now, maybe we bought it 10 years ago. And let's say the property now, because of this crazy, you know, fed fueled market is now worth say what 209 210 somewhere in there so you guys are you guys are saying well holy crap tim and julie that's you know that's a whole bunch of appreciation okay let's hover there now if that property and then let's say julie and i pay cash for it because generally speaking when we are buying rental properties that's what we do we save up the money and we pay cash that way we have immediate cash flow but off of all of our rental properties the average cash flow we make is about what thousand bucks now? No, about yeah. Okay, thousand. and that's assuming there's no repairs and there's no vacancies. Mm-hmm. And our original investment thesis was buy enough rental properties, save up the money, sacrifice, sacrifice, live under, you know, essentially Lawyer. live way under what we could have otherwise been enjoying, and sacrifice, sacrifice. That's what we did, and we did that for really the thirty years because we've been married for thirty years. Mm-hmm. Next year, thirty years, mm-hmm. um, and I look at essentially rental properties versus exp and i think how insane is it that mm-hmm. we now after a year and a half have been able to make it so that our revenue share from exp exceeds the rev uh, the uh, profit we're making from all of our rental properties and there are no clogged toilets so there are well, no vacant far more peaceful yes exactly it really is right and so if you're if, if you're thinking about the way forward and you're not an exp agent um, you've got to take a hard look at it, and I'll give you the two easy ways to do it. The you know this is the if you're just getting started with your exploration of this, just text the word EXP to three one nine nine six. Text the word EXP to three one nine nine six. If you're ready to move forward quicker, text text me directly on my cell phone, which is five one two seven five eight zero two zero six five one two seven five eight zero two zero six. Like a lot of people say, well, you know, you guys are just talking about revenue share and you guys are talking, it's an MLM and no, it's not. It's not an MLM. It's a revenue share model. It's a real estate brokerage that frankly has the best, if not better technology than the best real estate brokerages. Was that funder that we've ever coached for? And so what you get as an EXP agent exceeds what you get from virtually every real estate brokerage that Julie and I have ever coached for. And the expense structure, in other words, the amount of money that they take from your paycheck is exceedingly less. And in some cases, you know, a lot of cases, well, the biggest one I've had so far, and I'm not making this up, is he was paying his brokerage over $300,000 and with EXP is now paying 16000 And he gets that money back every year because he hits ICON in the form of EXPI stock. That's in other better. words, they, they give him his uh, cap back in the form of EXPI mm-hmm. stock. I've never seen in all... And I, don't know, I, I was thinking about this. What would be a more genius business to have gotten into? I would say probably Google, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> Google's definitely a more genius business. Amazon's a pretty good... Yeah, but Amazon, you had to have the warehouses yeah, and you had to hold crap. Yeah, going. They were unprofitable. Man, Google's the one, though. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, everyone, I see Google's become, you know, it's ubiquitous. It's where you, it's GTS, Google that shit, right? I mean, right. that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Everyone just goes to Google for everything. Google's become the de facto universal brain is what yes. it's become. Though Amazon at this point, because they have such, you know, hegemony over all their competitors, they're not going to have any competitors that are going to creep up on them. But still... If you look at genius business models of our lifetimes, 
There are so few that are more genius than eXp, especially for the sake of the betterment of the real estate agent and the brokerages, really. So while we're in the eye of the storm, and matter of fact, well, wasn't that timely that there was actually thunder in the background? Sounds Is there a storm good. nearby? I, I saw you look. Is. Yep. I don't see it. Doesn't it doesn't look like it from there, but I think that direction. All right. So, wow. We had I Mother know. Nature giving us sound effects. That That's was pretty right. cool. That was confirmation bias right there coming from above. Right. Right back. Okay, no problem. So, the moral of the story here, guys, is do take a hard look at it. If you're interested in joining EXP, if you want to have a fast-paced conversation that's going to get you as part of Julie and I's real estate team, do text uh, me directly at 512-758-0206. If you're just getting started, text the word EXP to 31996. Text the word EXP to 31996. The the conversation about EXP will be just like this. You're going to text me. I'm going to text you back. I'm going to say... are you ready to join? Are you looking for more information? It's usually 50-50. So I'm then going to text you back or email you a link to a lot of information. And then we're going to set a date where we're going to be talking, you know, next day or the fall, the day after that. And then we're going to answer all your final conver- your questions about eXp and then we're going to move forward. That's how simple it is. What most people say when they see the information about eXp is they say that why – this is what they say to me. Why wouldn't I want to do this? Like they're asking me a question because you know – they know I'm going to come from um, their best interest prior, you know, before ours. And I say, there is no reason why you wouldn't want to do it. There are, there's no downside risk to you becoming an EXP agent. And matter of fact, if you get into EXP and if you decide it's not for you, you can always quit. You can always just leave. You're not being you know, sent on a one-way mission to, to Mars, right? Where it's like, good luck. You know, hope you enjoy the planet. You're not coming back. With eXp, if you get into it and it's not for you, you can always just reverse course and just join whatever brokerage you want to. There's no limits. There's no contracts. There's no anything. And they're, they're not going to try to you know keep your listings or play games like that. This is the absolute smartest thing that you can be doing right now before the market starts taking a deciding shift in direction. Because all the things in varying degrees that all the experts, including Julie and I, are expecting to have happen will happen which is going to result in there being a lot of fast-paced change. Guys, things aren't unraveling. The dominoes aren't falling as fast as they normally would because of all the Fed uh, intervention, all the money that's being pumped into the economy. Will that continue to happen? We believe that it will. Will it happen specifically benefiting the people that have been benefited thus far? Most likely that will not be the play. Uh, might, might not happen, will not happen. I do think there's going to be another stimulus that's going to happen, obviously, but you're going to see some version probably of unemployment, but it's not going to have the, you know, it's not going to be for $600 per, per month or week, rather. You're going to see probably another sort of business bailout, but given the hubbub after the first one, you can pretty much be guaranteed it's not going to be easy to obtain. You have lots of levels of bureaucracy, and Julie and I did warn you guys about that back in March. Mm-hmm. We told you to be first in line for all these different programs. We told you the programs would, um, you know, what what we expected to have happen is exactly what happened. And what we are expecting to have happen again is exactly what most likely will happen in one form or another. So business-wise, if you want to be relevant in the future, let alone make a lot of money in the future, being able to help other people, do take a seriously hard look at joining us at EXP. Text me directly at 512-758-0206. Um, and yeah, let's have the conversation. Any thoughts for you on that? You've had a ton of coaching clients join EXP. Absolutely. Well, it's just it's the smart thing to do on pretty much every level. So if you say, 
Are my expenses going to go down? Yes. Am I going to have the support that I deserve and that I need? Yes. Will my technology be better? Yes. Is there a lead generation widget? Yes. You know, is there a CRM? Yes. 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 CRM. You can check all the boxes. Really, there's no box that you're not going to check. Um, So really, not checking it out is kind of a lazy move. And you really, you know, shouldn't be upset if your profit isn't what you thought it was going to be. So you're mentioning something that's triggering some thoughts. The types of emails and conversations I've been having are people saying they heard us talk about EXP, you know, a year ago, yeah. 18 months ago, but business that. was flying, their houses were flying off the shelves. They didn't, they weren't, they didn't have time to think, they didn't have time to think right? And maybe at the time that was the right, the, the best move. They needed to make hay while the sun was shining. Mm-hmm. But now after being in lockdown and fear of going in lockdown again, which is probably going to happen for a lot, of the, a lot of the country, you're having a lot of these folks that are saying, you know what, I'm going to go and look at my cost structure. It's what's happening across the country in every business, in every you know family, everyone everywhere is starting to take a real hard look at, I like to say, what they've institutionalized in their own heads as being just the way it is because it's always been that way. Some of those things will go back to being the way they are because they've always been that way. But virtually everything else is going to change. The way brokerages operate are going to change. And I'll tell you what's more, and this is what's really exciting, there is going to be more of a demand for caring, competent, skilled agents because of this changing market and all the whiz-bang tech companies that have all been sort of you know, waiting in the tall grass hoping that they can somehow discern. Ooh, that sounds good. <laughs> That's one of your friends, I'm sure. Yeah, somebody with a nice <laughs> Italian exotic car. Yeah. But anyway, what was I saying? <laughs> <laughs> you were blindsided. I was caring, blindsided. competent agents. Boom! Tim's distracted. Yeah, so... <laughs> I don't remember. No, no. But the fact is, it's entering into a market that's this turbulent, that's going to require this much, you know, differing skill set. Yeah. Let's say that you get the willies after six months, which we've never seen happen before. You mean EXP? You can make a change. This is not, you know, this is not like a life sentence. It it probably will be because you're going to love it. But if you decide that maybe it's not for you, then go do something else. But don't be pessimistic about the future and your future in real estate. Times like this, guys, they're they're exciting. The change is exciting. I get it. I feel the same way. Look, I was I was probably a little depressed after, you know, we saw and realized that some of our predictions about what was going to happen because of the coronavirus were going to play out. I wasn't I wasn't fearful for us or for our business or really. Wow, that sounds good. <laughs> or, or our coaching clients. I was really, f- I, no, I think it's a motorcycle. I was fearful for, um, I was fearful for all the people that were ill prepared. Ooh, I was fearful. No, I think that is a Ferrari. I was fearful for. Um, boy, I am easily distracted. You are. I? <laughs> I remember that. I have to get that. You know, we were talking about that big foot car exhaust app. I got to get that for you. Mm-hmm. I don't like what Tim is playing. I'm going to sound, play the sound of an F40 exhaust. <laughs> like a three-year-old. That's how I can I can work that on the regular podcast. When you're on a tangent that I'm not following. Boom, just, boom. Just sound a car off and you'll get back. <laughs> so, oh, now we hear sirens. I hope he's not getting pulled over. No, there's no that's cops funny. that pull cars over here. Well, that's true. It's Wild Wild West, Very man. unlikely. Yeah, very unlikely. You'd well, have to have been breaking a non-existent driving rule. <laughs> I think we talked about enough today. Yeah. Anything else on your mind? No, it's good. You know, another week's coming, so get ready to, to uh, make hay while sun shines. Yeah. I mean, be excited, guys. Don't be scared. We're going to keep you guys ahead. 
we're going to tell you the truth. We're not going to tell you the truth for the betterment of ourselves or because we're trying to sell you something, right? We're going to tell you the truth, and we're going to tell you when we are wrong. Fortunately, we're right, more right than we are wrong, especially right now. Julie and I are more or less built for a market like this. Our business is certainly we've been on. We've never had a brick and mortar location for our coaching business. It's always been virtual. All of our staff is virtual. We have people that work for us in I don't even know how many different states, and I think probably three or four different countries. Yeah. You know, it's all good. and it's all good. And some of these people we've never met except over Zooms and phone calls. Who cares? It all works. We're comfortable with it. And all of you guys are, too, because you've been home based as well. But what's happening next, what's going to happen next is going to create more uncertainty, more fear, more all this, but will create more opportunity because you're not going to participate in being stuck in the rabbit hole that so many other people will financially and, you know, because they are emotionally. So look forward, be excited, be optimistic. Um, stop waiting for things to return to normal. Those are my, I think, prevailing thoughts. Anything for you, dear? Yeah, well, you know, big shout out to all my great Premier Coaching clients. I'll look forward to seeing all of you guys this week. And thanks for continuing to make this the number one listen to daily podcast. And yes, Sunday is a little bit Looney Tunes. It's what we look forward to. This is our debrief. That's the reason we sound fragmented in our thoughts because they are. <laughs> so tell them how to get the normal podcast. Oh, it's we have a normal podcast? Like oh, well, so our normal, not normal but... our normal podcast comes out every single day. We have tens of thousands of listeners. Uh, if you Google, um, did I tell you this? No. So I Googled, I was going to take a screenshot. I forgot to tell you. Yeah. Uh, I Googled uh, number one uh, real estate realtor podcast and uh-huh. we come up number one. Nice. So we're, according, to Google, we're the, according to Google, we're the number one listen to daily podcast. But I know we already are from uh, iTunes and from Stitcher. So you have just, believe it or not, listened to the number one daily podcast for real estate professionals probably in the world. I know it might not sound like it after hearing us today. Normally, we're much more buttoned up. <laughs> <laughs> this was the Sunday show. This was the Sunday show. And uh, so there you go. Let us know if you need anything. If you guys want to uh, forward your conversation about joining EXP, text me directly at 512-758-0206, 512-758-0206. If you want to join our free coaching program, please just text the word SURVIVAL to 31996. Text the word SURVIVAL to 31996. We'll text you back a link. You just click the link. You then join. We send you a username and password. You join. You're in the coaching program. And you can uh, get all the benefits that we talked about uh, earlier on today's show. In the meantime, you guys have a fantastic day. We'll talk to you on the show anytime in replay on Stitcher's iTunes and whatnot or live tomorrow on our normally scheduled podcast. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.